everyone, welcome to the PR Week, PR Week's regular weekly roundup of everything that matters in the worlds of PR and communications. My name's Steve Barrett. I'm the editorial director of PR Week, going to guide you gently through another show. And we have a fantastic guest for you this week, listeners, a real legend of the industry. It's Larry Weber, who's the founder and chairman of Racepoint Global. And you might recognise his surname as well, because it's got some real historical um, importance in the industry. So, Larry, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Great to be here, Steve. I'm just fine. Yeah. Looking forward to chatting to you. I've got my normal co-host with me, Frank Washcook, PR Week's uh, executive editor. (laughs) How are you doing, Frank? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on, Steve. (laughs) Did I get it right? Yeah. We've got M.K. Kalanick with us, our intern for the summer, who's just started working with us on PR Week. How are you doing, M.K.? I'm great. So we thought we'd have you sit in on the show, and um, uh, we'll be featuring you throughout the summer as well. We've also got an intern in the production booth with uh, Luke Madden, who's uh, joining us. Hey, Luke, how are you? I'm good, how are you? being uh, tutored by Bill Fitzpatrick, our normal producer. So yeah, internships for the summer, they're all being paid, they're all getting real on-the-job experience, they're not just being sent out for coffees, in fact they're not being sent out for coffees at all, so uh, it's great to have them on board. Um, We'll talk to Larry, then we'll get into some of the big stories of this week, Tony the Tiger and Dylan Mulvaney, Edelman's made a few moves, it's Cannes next week, the Festival of Creativity, we'll preview that talk through former President Trump's arraignment and some of the comm strategies around uh, the uh, nascent presidential fight, and Karine Jean-Pierre and uh, her latest uh, experiences in the White House press office. But Larry, let's start with you. Your surname is Weber. That has some big significance in the industry. Now, for those who don't know, maybe just tell us uh, how you started out in the industry and how that name has now is now the second biggest agency in the world, over $900 million. I wonder if you could have imagined that um, many years ago, 45 years ago when you, when you founded the firm. Well, I, I've been in PR 45 years. It was a, took a little bit to build Weber Shanwick, but uh, I started uh, the Weber Group in the mid-80s, which by 1991 was the largest tech PR firm in the world. And uh, we were in uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts, Palo Alto, and London. And I got visited in late 1996 by three people. One was names, I don't think he was a sir yet. I think his name was just Martin Sorrell. And uh, also uh, a guy named John Wren, uh, who owned Iran Omnicom, and a guy named Phil Geyer, who ran Interpublic. And Interpublic didn't, hadn't bought any PR firms yet. And uh, they had a... Uh, uncomplex strategy by saying look we have the largest ad agency in the world that's McCann Erickson we want the largest PR firm in the world I said well okay that's interesting if I can use your checkbook we'll figure it out and uh, <laughs> they so they bought the Weber group and uh, we went on to buy over 20 firms around the world including Shandwick, Golan Harris, DeVries uh, oh god all the Hollywood firms uh PMK, BNC, was it? Yeah. Uh, you know, yeah, Michael. BSMG. Yeah, BSMG. It, it goes, it went on and on. And I think it was 1999. We were going to be the largest, but Fleshman Hiller, the guy 
uh, John was his first name. But anyway, he bought something and Fleshman Hillard claimed to be the largest PR firm in the world in 99. And so that's when I said, well, I just got BSMG. Why don't we put it all together, which we did. And Weber Shandwick was the largest PR firm as of 1999. I left in 2005, a couple of years after my earnout, and took a year off. Uh, when I left, it was 500 million in fees. We were about 5,000 people. So it's amazing that it's 900. They've obviously done a terrific job. Uh, Andy was very good and instrumental in building, you know, from when I left to, well, so was Harris Diamond. So, uh, yeah, you, you, you know, must have, so you worked great. with um, Harris, with uh, Andy, Jack Leslie, and yeah. uh, and Gail was, Gail Hyman was around. Back, back in yeah, those days, I guess. Creative, she was the creative director, I believe, at that. Yeah, and, and uh, Al Golin over at Golin, of course. Yeah, of course, they dropped the Harris, but he, yeah. he died way before Al Golin, so. <laughs> yeah, you were talking about John Graham, I think, over at Fleischmann. Yeah, John Graham. But, but that's interesting you mentioned John Wren, because obviously he's still there at Omnicom. Um, yeah. And Martin Sorrell's still around. He's got his own um, holding company, so. Yeah. Um, well, they were all good people. I, I still enjoy communicating with sir martin and uh obviously phil is gone guyer and mm -hmm. and but ren um you know was very smart purchase we were we was very close to becoming ketchum weber they were very attractive uh but uh that would didn't have been very different wouldn't it it's how yeah. different is the industry i mean back then i guess you had hill and knowlton and burson marstella you know were big players weren't yeah. they edelman was maybe not as quite was still growing it was around but no it, they it, were about uh, Edelman was a little under 300 million because I was trying to buy them. Of course, they wouldn't sell. And um, so, but the industry was pretty much, if you really looked at it, what's this now, 24, 23 years ago, you know, the big names were, they owned a certain real estate of the PR industry. So, Burson, Harold had sort of the corporate world uh, representing. Then you had Hill and Knowlton, which really came out of the public affairs, uh, government, public policy kind of thing. Then you had Porta Novelli, which came out of the healthcare world, uh, which was sort of interesting. Fleshman, which, you know, really was built on Anheuser-Busch, uh, you know, and representing consumer product goods. Ketchum was pretty consumer oriented as well, but also had ad agency, a lot of paid media. And Weber, we, I grew up in technology, so I was trying to position, you know, be one of the largest uh, that, uh, that grew out of technology DNA. And uh, what you had was the beginning in the 90s of, of going deeper vertical. So you had a lot of smaller firms popping up that focused on either technology, public affairs, uh, you know, consumer, sports, entertainment. So you started to see this sort of what were these sort of specific categories go deeper into smaller verticals. And the work was, was you know, still product launch driven. It was, you know, positioning work. It was uh, publicity, media relations. And we obviously didn't have the, uh, the digital set of influencers that have existed the last 10, 15 years that are growing stronger. Social media, of course, yeah, we're talking pre-cell phones, pre-smartphones, I mean, pre... Well, we all, we when, all had Blackberries. I, yeah. I was, yeah, I was very busy. I had two Blackberries. I thought I was so important. You know, 
What do you think made it? Made it? I mean, putting those firms together is not easy, is it? You know, you, you, you've a collection of disparate firms there. How how did you make that successful? I think I bet there was a bit of skepticism at the time that you could do that and actually make it work. Yeah. Clearly, you did. Yeah, there was skepticism. What I, the model I looked at was a legal or accounting model, Steve, which was you know to look at sort of a matrix of first of all give people their own geographies so don't try to compete in other geographies with what you're doing and second build out verticals so we wanted to build out technology globally we wanted to build out public affairs globally we wanted to build out consumer product uh globally so that you didn't necessarily compete you also needed less p l's what screws up when you put companies together is having multiple P&Ls because then everybody's fighting for the money. And if you can just get down to a few P&Ls like North America or, you know, Europe or or just a technology, you know, uh, practice um, P&L, you're going to have a lot more success. And then, uh, you know, you, you also have to understand the level of sophistication of the different categories. Consumer product is very different than a deep technology type of uh, consulting and positioning work. Um, so, or B2B, which like Edelman just opened, I see a B2B practice. Mm-hmm. So they've been in B2B for a long time. I've competed against them in that. So I guess this is just to get more specific expertise, but um, Makes a good you know, news story, Larry. <laughs> yeah. 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 Just add add to the news. But, you know, it's it's still, you know, now fast forward to like a race point And now it's not just technology or B2B. I mean, we're talking about people that have expertise on our team in semiconductors, experts in networks, uh, 6G, not just 5G networks, you know. So this is the kind of direction it's going. So it's, um, you know, where you have to be go even deeper into these verticals than you've ever gone before. And that's really part of the future too. But back then it sort of went from very general and broad and down to the more specific. We'll talk about race point, just finally on the sort of historical context and looking where we are now, how how do you think we, we often say that, you know, you've heard that cliche about getting the seat at the table. And we're often saying recently, especially post COVID that PR really does have that seat at the table and really is at the in amidst the C-suite and with the CEO making business decisions. Do you see that? Do you see that the uh, the role and the the function has elevated over the decades and that it's really in a good position now? Or do, wh- wh- what's your view on the on where we're sitting at the moment? Um, historic. I I think we are there, and I think it's it's. But you know, I have to say, Steve, I think. When I was starting out, I, the the icons of PR were at the CEO table. They were Harold Burson and Al Golan, and you know these guys were were not only counselors to CEOs, but they were friends of the CEOs, giving them opinions on and presidents. Positions. Yeah, kind of, th- and presidents. And now I think, yeah, especially in sectors like technology, where. You know, CEOs need to be a brand in themselves, so they need to have senior executives in PR and communications that get that, you know, the C-suite has its own brand, people, the company has its own brand, 
you know, an issue. So I think it has expanded, but it also is, again, by category. You know, if you're going to launch sour cream flavored Pringles, you probably don't need to be talking to the CEO all the time of Procter & Gamble. But if you're repositioning Procter & Gamble for M&A or whatever, you know, that's a whole different set Mm. of communication skills. Although if you're going to align the the brand, the Pringles, with uh, purposeful issues or, you know, LGBTQ rights, etc., maybe you do need to be, you know, I think the CEO does need to have uh, advice and on how to handle this and how to, you know, respond when you get backlash and all that stuff. Because you were... Yeah, I think that's a good point. I mean, one of your news things was the Tony the Tiger thing. Mm -hmm. I guess, you know, my my thing there would have been, why is Kellogg's even, you know, marketing through the Tony Awards? I didn't... I sort of lost that bit of connection Mm. there. But Well, we'll we'll get into that. Just talking about Race Point, you're you're, uh, 20 years in. Um, yeah. it's, and it's 25 years in for PR Week US and $11 million agency. But I think brand purpose, tech for good, CSR into ESG and whatever comes next there are key tenets. Just give us a, a little bit on uh, where Race Point's at. Yeah, well, where we are is, is really technology and humanity, which is the wave I think we're moving into. And that's the book I'm working on right now, which is uh, coming out in the spring. It's my seventh book, half of you know, called uh, A New Age of Reason, The Power of Tech for Good. And that's what Race Point's about. It's about tech-infused brands that are leaders in categories and want to make impact on humanity um, because this seventh wave of computing is about humanity and technology forever linked and forever integrated. And, uh, and, you know, that's part of why Facebook's having issues, but we can talk about that later. Mm. But that's what Race Point's focused on. We're looking for companies that want to lead, whether it be in agriculture technology, whether that be in climate technology, whether that be in semiconductor technology, of which we cover all those categories right now with large uh, clients, and uh, and just grow that way. And uh, Yeah, and, and it's, in, in yeah. terms of your outlook on the world, I think one of your con- – contentions is that we need a new position the chief ethics officer do you want to tell us what what's behind that you know what it, what is that position going to add to maybe what is well, already I, there yeah well you know i've always followed software i mean i go back to the early 80s and working on lotus and all the way through and launching sap uh helping with linkedin which is really software you know and and what what i'm saying is that as software gets more complex and eats the world you're going to have to have ethical people at the table that are really policing what it's about. And now with this AI cra- craziness, uh, you know, there has to be some at the, someone at the sea level, uh, in, including your cor- communications people that understand the base of, of corporate morality and co- ethics in the use of software. And that there should be guardrails, you know, for the use of technology. And I think that's critical and important. And you're going to see more of that, not less of that. Um, And you think that's a separate role? That's not something that you can infuse in the CEO, the CCO, the CMO? Yeah, I think it needs to be a separate role. I think the whole C-suite's going to be changing. I think there's also going to be a chief of innovation that's looking not only at technologies that companies are building, but what technologies are out there that we can use that can give us competitive advantage. Yeah. So you're going to see the C-suite changing. 
and the communications people are going to be the link across so we're actually going to be more horizontal and vertical in nature and that's why it's uh i think earned media is going to continue to be a very important contributor to uh the c-suite absolutely amen to that well um great to hear some of the history larry and and what you're doing now as well and continuing so looking forward to that new book coming out and looking forward to getting your input on some of these stories Frank, let's talk about Tony the Tiger and uh, linking up with Dylan Mulvaney and any other sort of LGBTQ-related uh, marketing and branding uh, stories that we've been covering a lot recently. Yeah, so um, Kellogg, the parent company of Frosted Flakes, of which Tony the Tiger is, of course, the, the mascot, would clarify to say that they, they haven't been working with Dylan Mulvaney. It was just that their mascot, Tony, who uh, I guess appropriately was at the Tony Awards, um, was uh, just bumped into her uh, on the red carpet and uh, took a few pictures, and that's about it. Now, just that in and of itself prompted a backlash from conservative activists calling for for a boycott of the brand, similar to uh, what happened with Bud Light. But, uh, again, Kellogg, the the parent company of Frosted Flakes, would say that there's no collaboration there. They were actually partnering with the Tony Awards uh, and not her, and they just bumped into each other. So, Mm. interestingly, um, Mulvaney said in an Instagram post that she was invited to the awards ceremony by Meta, but but Meta is not responding to requests for comments about that. Yeah, it's um, it's, a, it's a tricky atmosphere. Right it now. is, you know. We've seen Bud Light sales go fall, and they're no longer the biggest selling beer. But what is Frank? Well, um, let me. I, I was just going to say one thing about this is that it just goes to show. This is another, for instance, of how brands and companies, in this case, the parent company Kellogg, need to be prepared for all of these kind of unprecedented situations like your mascot you know a guy in a costume literally just uh bumping into somebody at an awards red carpet and and how that can become a crisis immediately and then how you have to respond to it um now we've seen all the reports about uh the share price of anheuser-busch the parent company of Bud Light dropping over the past month uh, since people have boycotted the brand. Uh, And it's now been replaced as the number one selling beer brand in the U.S. by Modelo. Uh, So, uh, you know, that has had a material impact. uh, On the parent company and and on the Bud Light brand in and of itself. Well, it also, it, it really just shows that, you know, you brands have to be crystal clear about what they stand for. I mean, they have to know what they stand for, what they're going to defend and what they're going to engage in. And if they're not prepared to 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 be that kind of a brand, then they shouldn't be, you know, out in the uh, the broad consumer communications world because they're going to get hit sometime just like they did. And now Kellogg is, too. So, yeah, but that, that, that also you've got to maybe take a bit of step step back and just say. Have, adopt a bit of common sense as well, because like Frank said, they just bumped into into each other, yeah. Yeah. and and yeah. The, the, it's such a febrile atmosphere, isn't it? That any tiny thing like this is picked up by a very small majority of people. You got to say so. You got to, I think you got to be strong as well and stick to your convictions and and not be sort of reacting to every single post on Twitter or on wherever whichever social uh, platform they're using. Yeah. 
Yeah, and, and to your point, um, this is a person in a tiger costume. Yeah. I, mean. <laughs> I think Larry made a good point, actually. Yeah. But the biggest story there is, should they be uh, aligning with the Tony Awards? You know, is that a natural... Right. Oh, they're both called Tony. We should get, you know... That, to me, seems like a bigger branding story than, than, than what I we're talking about, yeah, right? Yeah, I'm not a fan of Frosted Flakes, but I, I don't know if Tony the Tiger is a fan of musicals. Yeah. Well, Do you? I, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe maybe they're coming out with Tony the Tiger musical next the year. Musical, yeah. MK, you're of a generation that I think maybe views brands in different ways and views social issues in different ways. What do you think of this sort of controversy that, around brands um, making statements about social issues or, or even just aligning and showing support? I feel like either way, no matter what happens, half of their audience is going to love it and then half of it half of their audience is going to absolutely hate it. And I guess it's just a risk that the brands are willing to take. And do you think your generation wants to know what a brand stands for and, you know, whatever it is, more than maybe your, your parents' generations, for example? Honestly, I feel like if a brand is super transparent about those things, that it's, a, it's great. But if they're overloading with those types of things, it could be seen as too pushy. And they've got to be authentic, haven't yeah. they? And not just apply their logo to Pride, right. for example, without having proper commitment to it. Yeah, it's a, it's an interesting topic. I mean, and I know we'll be we'll get, be getting onto Cannes later, and I'm sure we'll talk about it uh, next week at the festival. Let's. Uh, we talked about Edelman earlier, Frank. They've we've done a few stories about them this week. Just give us a wrap up of those. Trio of stories here. Number one, Edelman has launched a global B two B marketing group. Larry, you pointed out earlier they've been in B two B for a long time. Um, but really formalizing the offering. Uh, and they're putting their global chair, Joe Kingsbury, and global head of operations, David Whiting, in charge of the unit that's going to have about 100 B2B specialists around the globe. Um, another Edelman story is that they're working with the Forum Founders Group uh, on co-branded content and events. Uh, and that's an organization that works to support uh, technology startups. And the agency is going to support uh, Founders Forum London, which is an industry event that will feature 200 unicorn founders uh, and technology entrepreneurs. Now, a uh, less favorable story for the firm is that BCW has hired Aaron Gutterman to lead their Washington, D.C. office. He is formerly the chairman of Energy and Industrials Policy at Edelman Global Advisory, one of the Edelman units that's shown a lot of growth around the globe uh, over the past year or two. Yeah, um, Larry, looking at Edelman, they, they, they celebrated 70 years last year. They crossed the billion-dollar revenue threshold. It's quite remarkable, really, if you think about when Richard Edelman joined the firm. I think they were at $6 million, And when he took over as CEO, they were maybe a couple of hundred million. To see them go over a billion is extraordinary. What's your reflections on Dan Edelman setting up that up and, and Richard sort of continuing his and building on his legacy? Well, Dan Edelman, I only have uh, positive things to say. He was an amazing man. Got to know him very well. Um, obviously, came out of Chicago and more of the consumer and corporate areas and built a really wonderful uh uh, beginning of a of a great platform. Richard, I think, took over, like you said, probably uh, in the 200, 180 million range mm-hmm. uh, kind of thing. And then uh, I've got to hand it to Richard. You know, we were in a race 
Uh, we thought we could be the first billion dollar firm, but I was uh, working for somebody else and they had an independent group, which, uh, you know, they could go down to a, a lower profit margin and uh, and keep their people and continue to grow where being part of a holding company, you were constantly being told you had to hit 20% in profits uh, no matter what. So I'm not saying that's good or bad, but I think Richard was well-educated at Harvard Business School. He uh, he knows business. He's strong leader. And uh, I think now what he needs to do is just continue to capitalize, not lose as many great senior people and, you know, go deeper into B2B like he did with this announcement. Like I said before, they've been around all these categories because we compete with them at race point in B2B and technology all the time. But uh, I see them only getting better. If I was him, uh, the one missing piece would be a very senior horizontal consulting strategy group um, at the level of a McKinsey that could come in and uh, be really a lead generator uh, from a very, very serious consulting point of view. And he has the money and the smarts to do that. I think Edelman will dominate uh, for a long, long time. I think Weber was the Coke. Now they're the Pepsi. Uh, you know, maybe they can come back and beat Coke. Yeah, well, to be fair, they're <laughs> we'll over see. 900 million. So they're, you know, they're, yep. and they've got United Minds in that senior sort of consultancy space. And uh, so, yeah, yep. no, it's been, a, it's been a great story for the industry, I think. And, and, and yeah. good, good to see multiple firms, you know, with big, big uh, presences like that. Frank, uh, they'll all be at Cannes next week, as will I. Um, it's the <laughs> Festival of Creativity. They will. I'll be working hard. I will not be just drinking rosé on the croisettes and uh, swanning <laughs> around the beach and parties. I'll be too busy bringing you the highlights. But anyway, what's, what, what's, what should we be looking out for, Frank? We're very, very jealous of the access you'll have to uh, the, the Pétanque courts of Marseille and, <laughs> and other places as well. So, um, yeah, so uh, this is going to be interesting because um, Bud Light is due to receive a big uh, award at Cannes this year. Uh, uh, and it will it will be uh, a bit awkward, it seems, and um, it'll be interesting to see how it's received overall. Um, it's been a lot of speculation about how much of the festival AI is going to be. Yeah, I'm uh, sure I'm going to be all AI'd out by the end of the week, for sure. Um, yeah, um, but... Uh, you know, the, the festival has tended to reflect the broader themes out there, right? Um, the one year, there was a lot of post-pandemic activations there were some ukraine related activations mm-hmm. uh, interested to see what you what you think you're going to see well i do remember the greenpeace activists climbing all over the roof of the palais uh, last yeah. year and and then in the morning and then in the evening winning a lion which inside the palais which i was i found slightly ironic and uh, um we are promised protests this year from clean creatives the uh, environmental right. group Although the police were certainly for the film festival uh, the other month, they were they were very clear that they were going to be cr- clamping down hard on protesters. So yeah, hopefully you don't get the protests from the Uber drivers again. Yeah, that was fun. Yeah, <laughs> that was. Uh, I can imagine. That was great getting dropped off on the uh, on the. They, they wouldn't take you down to the airport. They dropped us all off, so you had all these ad execs with their rolling their suitcases down the the freeway, which. 
no doubt a lot of people found very funny. And um, but uh, yeah, that was that was a fun year. The French know how to do a good protest, that's for sure. So um, yeah, well, I mean, was was Cannes a big thing back in your day, Larry, or do you think it's taken on a much bigger? Seems to have got much bigger, hasn't it? And brought in the it, it was very much just ad ad creatives, I think, yeah. and it's brought in the wider fold now, hasn't it? Yeah, well, that's what I was going to say, Steve. It was almost purely advertising. Just uh, twenty five years ago, it was. All the, you know, Ogilvy, McCann, mm-hmm. DDB, that you, you really had no concentration or focus on earned media or PR at all. That's only been in the, you know, recent past that that's happened. And it's mostly because of the good creative that I think our industry is putting forward. Uh, so it's nice to see that it's uh, going beyond just advertising. and, and also and reflects in. the merging of the disciplines, doesn't it? Yeah, it does and the importance that we have to the brand and that integration i was i think you will see a lot about ai i, I was i was wondering if you'll see somebody like uh try to ask chat gbt to uh do all the winners in uh, a shakespeare sonnet or something mm. like that you know <laughs> well frank frank has said many times we're all going to be replaced by robots so uh, but We've all, we're, at least we're at the, that's something you're going to have to deal with, MK, competing with robots uh, for you. <laughs> my time is almost done. So um, let's talk about uh, former President Trump, who was arraigned uh, this week and, and seemed to use that as a jumping off point for a, a publicity blitz. Yeah, right? certainly. As much used, as anything. Certainly used it for fundraising. It's unprecedented, obviously, the first time that uh, a former president has been arraigned by uh, federal prosecutors uh, in a criminal trial. The timeline for this trial is TBD, but looks like it's going to stretch into throughout the 2024 presidential campaign and into 2025, which will just uh, add to what is already set to be a very um, interesting environment next year for an election. Um, In terms of the communications element, he uh, seemed to preview his message for 2024 last night in terms of, uh, you know, real grievance filled uh, speech about the prosecutor and Biden and uh, and all of that. I I think it's interesting to, um, you know, put yourself forward as being, you know. Uh, persecuted while you're at a country club, but, uh, you know, ironic venue. But, um, yeah, I mean, we're going to see a lot more of that over the next two years, and that's going to be the line that that he continues to use. Um, but we're, we're seeing the Republican primary go up a notch. Uh, you know, you and I were talking before about Former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie was been uh, was on CNN this week in a town hall. Former Vice President Mike Pence has been out there more, um, as have some others. So it's uh, it's going up a notch. Yeah, it's th- th- those were interesting interviews, and um, you've got and then uh, Gavin Newsom um, was on Sean Hannity's show yeah. on Fox, and actually has, I've rarely seen Hannity taken apart by a politician like he was by Newsom, who held him to account on every single point, but. You're seeing, you know, Dem, Dems on uh, Fox and you're seeing the Republicans on CNN. And so it's changed a bit in that respect, hasn't it? Yeah. And, and I think what Newsom did was smart because I, I think it is important for Democrats to go on Fox and make their case there, even if they don't think they're necessarily getting 110 percent a fair shake just because of how much how many people out there and how many people really in the middle do watch Fox 
And yeah. so it's important for, for somebody who obviously has higher ambitions like Newsom to go out there. Yeah, I don't think someone like Joe Biden could have performed like that. But it was interesting seeing Mike Pence was very weak, I thought, in his interview, whereas Christie was quite impressive. Um, yeah, well, in my opinion, Pence hasn't left himself much of an opening because he's, he's so petrified of offending any supporters of Donald Trump, who, of course, didn't seem to mind if, you know, his supporters killed Pence. Um, but at the same time, you know, trying to run against him. And he is, it doesn't leave you much of a lane to, to go with. Yeah. And I, I will say this, Pence has put out a stronger statement this week and made stronger comments about the federal case against Trump, which, if you have not read, has 37 counts and is, is extremely thorough. And, and, and these are deadly serious accusations. And um, so Boxes it, of documents in bathrooms on hotel properties. Yes. So... Um, yeah, we'll we'll see where that criminal case goes. Larry, you've seen politics throughout the years and the way candidates and politicians communicate. What do you think of the environment now? Is it 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 seems like it's harder to get a consensus even within the same party, let alone a cross-party consensus. And it that that's a bit of a problem for America, isn't it when you're seeing China and India and and we the Middle East making massive global strides, you know, economically and politically and socially and, and kind of taking on more, more more of the leadership role in in the global environment yeah well it, it's difficult to control any kind of communication when especially when trump is more of an emotional positioning to his base uh and not really one of uh knowledge based or policy based or anything like that and so it's hard to change emotion no matter how good you are as a communicator the last time I saw that was more back when I was a little kid with Kennedy, was there was a, an emotional connection. Um, and, uh, you know, I doubt he'll win the presidency again, but we'll have to see. It'd be interesting to, for you guys to pull together some of the more respected, you know, communicators in the public affairs and government sector for a roundtable that follows this, you know, the, the Anita Duns of the world and the also from the Republican side, you know, where not to judge these these people, but um, to really look at how the communication channels have changed and uh, and the tones have changed. And uh, it's fascinating I, from a personal point of view. I wish we had maybe you could ask your intern, but uh, I wish there was some younger, uh, stronger voices that would run for uh, president. Uh, you know, I think of uh, Pete, who's now the transportation secretary. Yeah, I thought he was. Yeah. yeah, I thought he was an impressive speaker, an impressive thinker. Even though his experience is mayor of South Bend, Indiana. <laughs> uh, you know, but at some point, Trump turned seventy-seven today or yesterday, and you know, if Biden wins again, he'll be eighty-six in his fourth. You know, his fourth year. I mean, th this gets beyond the bounds of, of communication skills, you know. So. Yeah, MK, well, I mean, just on that point, just seeing these, I mean, politicians have often been <laughs> old guys, and it usually is guys, unfortunately, still to have a female president. Would you love to see it? I assume the answer is yes. You'd love to see some younger younger faces, you know, out there rep representing the, the political parties. Um, yeah, I would love to see younger faces. I feel like the people who are making decisions are oftentimes more focused on the power aspect 
than changing something or just making it better for everyone. So I think there is um, room for a lot of room for improvement. And it also kind of ties into the ethics of everything. So, yeah, definitely some younger faces making the decisions would be great. Yeah, we want some uh, younger faces. I think we're all a bit tired of uh, these old, old old guys sort of <laughs> with their entrenched views. But uh, All right, and let's finish up, Frank, with uh, Karine Jean-Pierre. She violated the Hatch Act. What does that mean? That means uh, that a government employee, which she technically is, as the White House press secretary, uh, cannot function as a member of a presidential campaign. And so this is an effort to keep uh, the people who are paid by the taxpayers, who you know work out of the White House and the West Wing, uh, away from campaign messaging. So uh, she was given a notice by the uh, Office of Special Counsel, uh, which is a watchdog, essentially a government watchdog, uh, that she violated the Hatch Act when she was using uh, language that included the use of uh, MAGA Republicans, that it was just a bit too over the line in terms of crossing crossing over the line a bit too much. So basically they sent her a letter. uh, There's no further action on it. And that's it. Is it how unusual is it? Did this happen in the previous administration? I don't know if it's unprecedented, yeah. but it it's not something that happens to every press secretary. That's yeah. for sure. Yeah. All right. Well, that's all we've got time for, Larry. It was a real uh, treat to speak to you. Thank you so much for joining us. Continued, I was so excited. Yeah. Continued good health to you and to your agency. Looking forward to seeing your new book. And um, yeah. Thanks for doing such a great job with PR Week. Yeah, no worries. Thanks uh, thanks for um, the support over the years. Thank you, Frank. Thank you, MK. And uh, thank you to Luke in the controls desk. Just to say, uh, if you've got uh, work that you uh, think is worthy of a purpose award, you've still got a little bit of time to get your final submissions in. The official final deadline is 16th of June, which is Friday this week. If you're special podcast listener you might be able to get a small extension if you speak nicely to the awards team so do make sure you've got your best work in for that the awards will be given out at pr decoded our annual conference in chicago that's in october and uh, the awards will be on the first evening october 11th and 12th and then 40 under 40 that event will be in october in new york city so rewarding and honoring new talent but uh, that's all we got time for we'll see you next time on the pr week